Turn with me to Acts chapter 21. I said it was 50-something. It's technically only 47, okay? 47 verses we're going to look at together this morning. Um, And it's really not going to be too much, hopefully, because though we're going to see a lot of conversations and uh, discourse and things of response happening in this setting, um, I want to point out one major theme in this for us. And I think that it kind of starts with one section of a verse that we're going to read this morning, as well as uh, two other just verses of the Bible that come to mind uh, as I've read this story. And so we're also going to look different. I'm not going to read the entire text this morning because it is so long. I'm going to just wait until I break up the sections and I'm going to read it then, explain, uh, explain the section and then go on to the next section, okay? Um, but before we get into all of that, look at verse 31 of chapter 21. 21 verse 31. We're going to skip to the second half of this sentence. It says, Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. I'm going to pause with that and just say that what's going on here essentially is that though there are three parties involved, No one really knows what's going on, and no one was in control of the situation or the circumstances they had found themselves in. And the main point of the sermon will be really just this idea that though there is no one in control in the circumstances, there is one that is ultimately in control, and that is the Lord. That God was the one that knew exactly how this circumstance would play out and how it would end for Paul. But the Jewish individuals, there's really two sections of Jewish individuals here. Those from Ephesus, those from Jerusalem, they're not in control, though they would come across as if they were in control. The tribune enters the scene, and though they seem like they're in control because they take Paul and they kind of come to his rescue of sorts, They are not in control. They are just as confused as everyone else in Jerusalem. Paul, though he speaks to what is going on, he's really just going with the flow. He doesn't know how this will end for him. And he knew that from the beginning. Though he may seem like he is comforted, he's not in control. But what we see in this is that the Lord was certainly in control. Two verses that come to mind before we get into any of Acts The first one is Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by the words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, 
Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were the bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut the sea with its doors and the burst came out of its womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and who set bars and doors and said thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Chapter 38 and chapter 39 and chapter 40 in chapter 41, all have the same rhetorical questions from God to Job, which its basis is essentially, who are you but a man? I was the one whom did this. And then I'm reminded of Genesis chapter 50. Starting in verse 15, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we have did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying before he died, Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive their transgressions of the servants of your God, of, of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to him, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you mean evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive and that they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In both of these moments, we see the sovereignty of God in display. One, we see God's direct response to, jo to a man named Job. The second one, we see the response of a faithful one of God in responding to his brothers and showing not only his forgiveness, but his understanding that God was a God that took a horrific situation, years of suffering and alone and imprisonment and all of those things and used it for the betterment of his people to keep many alive. And in this morning's text, in Acts chapter 21, we see really the same thing at play. We see this moment when a group of Jews calls an uproar in Jerusalem against Paul. The tribunal steps in. And does what they're supposed to do and try to bring a peace to the world around them. So the tribune is operating in the confines of godly leadership in the secular world of senses, meaning 
that he's trying, they're trying to bring peace and order into a horrific moment in the life of Jerusalem. And so when they arrest Paul, they're not essentially arresting Paul for doing evil, but they're binding him between two soldiers and taking him away so that the crowd would quit beating him to death. But then Paul gets to speak to the crowds. And when he speaks to the crowds, we've already seen right before that, that the, the tribunes confused of who Paul is, assuming he's this uh, cult leader of sorts, this, um, this rebellion, leading this rebellion out of Egypt. They're confused on who Paul is. And not only are they confused on who Paul is, they permit him to speak. And when he speaks, he speaks in Hebrew. And therefore, they would have been even more confused because most likely they did not speak the same language. And then when Paul gives his speech, we see then the people will get angry again. And so the tribune take him into the inner courts there and say, essentially, we're going to flog you because this was their means of making sure that if someone had a potential of being guilty, they would confess to something and then give them the right to arrest them. So the flogging wasn't in a punishment, but it was torture, torture so that the individual would admit to doing something evil because they, once again, do not know what's going on. They don't understand it. The Jews don't understand it. Paul is certainly not in control. But in the midst of all of this, God is in control. And we will get to that point at the very end of our time together. So, we're going to walk slowly through this. By first and foremost looking at 27 through 40. And in 27 through 40, you see... The, this uh, arrested in the temple. Uh, and he certainly is arrested in the temple of a certain variety because they would have been temple police that would have arrested Paul of sorts, but not arrested by the Roman government. And then his arrest by the Roman government was, was essentially to provide a comfort and a peace for him in the midst of a difficult time. But this is a moment before his speech is what I want us to see this as. This is what is happening to unfold Paul's speech in Jerusalem. Now, as a way of reminder, last week David preached the first part of 21 all the way through verse 26. And we see Paul makes his way back to Jerusalem, though the many people around him said, look, do not go to Jerusalem. Do not go. Do not go. And when you go, it's going to be hard for you, difficult for you. You're going to be arrested so much so that there was a prophet that tied up his hands and says, this is going to be the outcome for you. And they're advising him not to go. But Paul's certain that God was calling him to. He follows the leadership of the spirit, even though there was good godly advice to point out that he shouldn't do this. He knew so strongly within who he was that God was calling him to. So he goes into Jerusalem and then he interacts with specifically James which would have been like the leader of the Jerusalem church at the time, maybe a head pastor of sorts. And he interacts with James and James says, look, they're, they're, they're saying this about you. And as they're saying this about you, if you, if you want to just not die here or if you want to have a, a ministry here in Jerusalem before you go to Rome, you really need to go and just prove to them 
that you, that you are still a Jew, essentially. And so Paul, and we're going to read this verse again in a little bit, in second in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, in verses 20 through 22, says, To the Jew I became a Jew in order to win the Jew. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I may win those under the law. So Paul subjects himself to the Jewish law just for a season. Why? So a hope that he could reach the Jewish person while he was in Jerusalem. It's not that he was convinced that he had to obey the law anymore, but as a way of trying to reach those whom he was desiring to reach in Jerusalem. And so he does that. He goes through the purification process, which is a seven-day process. And at the seventh day, they would then go into the temple. And that's where the scene picks up. It says, when the seven days were almost completed, this is verse 27. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. For they had previously seen Triumphus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the triumph the tribune of the court, that all of Jerusalem has, was in confusion. So just a simple backstory is there were several wars that broke out in this time era. Josephus wrote about most of them, which is an ancient historian in the antiquity times. He wrote about most of them. A lot of what's going on here is a byproduct of those wars. They believe Paul was one of the, the, the leaders out of one that happened in Egypt, and that's where you see the confusion of the tribune later. But also, that's why this tribune existed. It would have been a group of about a 1,000 soldiers that stayed in the Jerusalem area. About 600 of them would have been armed with swords and whatnot, and another would have been more of an infantry, not infantry, but more of like a, a bow and arrow type setting, spears, things of that nature. <coughs> so that's who this tribune is. But the other thing going on here is that there's this group of Jews from Asia. Now, we don't know exactly where from Asia, but what we know about Paul's time in Asia, where did he spend most of his time? In Asia. We talked about it for like three, four weeks. One location specifically in Asia that he was. He gave a big speech to the elders before he left there. Ephesus. Thank you. And so most likely, though, there was this uprising there that caused an issue for Paul there, but Luke doesn't address it. Whatever that issue was has probably now followed Paul to Jerusalem and the Jews that he had an issue with in Ephesus are the Jews that are standing up and saying, this is the man that is 
telling people everywhere and everyone that they don't have to do these things. The reason why we come to that conclusion is because I mentioned this guy, Triumphus, that was the Ephesian, right? And so most likely it was the Jews that were in Ephesus. And so they saw, this guy was apparently some known guy in Ephesus, and they saw Paul interacting with him. But there's two claims here, okay? The two claims here, the, the charges against Paul from these Jewish individuals from Asia that bring in the, Egypt, the Israelites, not the Israelites, I'm sorry, the Jews from Jerusalem to cause this uproar. The first one is that he's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law of this place. Say, look, he's saying he's coming out against Jerusalem. He's coming out against the law. He's coming out against all those things. And maybe there's some truth to that, right? Paul says that there's no more need to circumcise. Why? Because it's a circumcision of the heart, not of the physical body. So, yes, he speaks to the law being fulfilled in Christ. So maybe, just maybe, you could take Paul's words and you could move them around a little bit to where this first claim would maybe make a little bit of sense. The second claim, though, is it's just preposterous. This says that he brought a Greek into the temple and defiled the holy place. We see that Paul doesn't come to his defense here. But what they're claiming is this that guy named Triumphus, they saw Paul walking around the city with him. And then assumed that he also went into the temple with Paul. And then in doing that, Paul blasphemed the temple, making the holy place no longer holy. Because there was the temple is an interesting place, right? The temple, there is an uh, inner court and there's an outer court. Uh, the inner court's the temple. The outer court's the exterior of that. And J- individuals that were not Jewish or the Gentile of birth could be in the outer court, but they couldn't go in the inner court. There would have been these gates. It says they closed the gates. Those gates would have prevented people from going there and forth. There would have been signs up that said, stop, don't go in. This is not for you. This is not for you. And it would have, there would have been enough signs there that says, don't go in here if you're not a Jew. And Paul, knowing that if he took this guy in there that was a Greek, that not only would Paul die, but they would have killed this other guy as well. So nothing about that situation would scream, Paul did this. But these were the claims. And then they take Paul out of the temple. So imagine there's a church building of sorts. And there's, this is the temple. They go in, they take Paul, and they drag him out of the temple. And then they shut these gates and they begin to beat him in the outer court. There's a lot going on there, too. They're claiming that Paul took what was holy and made it unholy while they are actually taking what was holy and made it unholy in their own action. But we also do see that they have a concern because when they shut the gate, the reason they would shut the gate in a situation like that was that when they begin to stone this guy in the outer court so that the blood would not enter the temple and make it unpure. In, in the Levitical law, that second thing, if that was true, in the Levitical law, they would have been just to do it. But this story reminds me of a very early story that Paul actually referenced himself, and that is the death of Stephen. That Stephen, 
is claimed to be teaching something contrary to that of the law. So they take him out of the city and then they stone him to death. Paul actually says, I was the one in whom they laid their coat down at the feet of as they stoned Stephen. Which means that Paul most likely was one of the biggest ones that pulled him out of the city. And then probably was one of the first ones, if not the first one, that threw a rock at the man. Or if nothing else, he delivered the papers that said, you can kill him. The reason why I mention that is not only because Paul mentions it in just a moment, to point out that this story does not end that way. And the reason being is the same God that was sovereign over the death of Stephen is sovereign over the life of Paul in this moment. And the only thing that separates those two was God's design and plan for their life. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around, but it was God's plan for Stephen to give up his life in that moment for martyrdom. But it is now Paul's, God's plan for Paul's life to not only allow him to get beaten in the middle of the temple area, but also to be imprisoned and go to Rome and then go into Rome, preach the gospel even to Caesar himself. So God is in control in the midst of this confusion because God has a plan for Paul's life that differed from that of Stephen, even though the language is so, so similar. But picking up in 32, and it says, At once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So imagine this scene with me. Uh, have you, you ever seen a scene on a movie or you've seen um, something similar, maybe even in real life, where there's this, this group of bullies picking on a guy, kicking him in a circle. We, if y'all want, we can interact this with uh, Elijah later and we could just kick him around in a circle if y'all want. Uh, but there's this scene, right, where there's a bully, bullies that are just picking on this one guy and then there's a, the cop or the principal or whoever pops up into the scene and then they just stop kicking them and acting like life is normal. Y'all seen scenes like that in movies? That's what this is like. They're beating him, kicking him, causing this uproar and these just hundreds of soldiers comes around all armed up, ready to battle, ready to fight. They just stop. And the reason why they stop is because they would assume that maybe they would have saw this as an uprising. So they would have came in there and just destroyed everybody. All right. So they stop. Verse 33. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. They don't even know what's going on. They just see this man on the ground getting beaten. And so they take him and they put two chains on him. And that's not like a, a rap reference, right? Or anything like that. That's just like, essentially, there would have been one chain on the left, one chain on the right. And then there would have been a soldier on each side of that. So this was Paul's protection. They were essentially becoming his bodyguards at this moment. They're taking and providing for him in this moment. They don't even know who he is. They put the chains on him and then they begin to ask. Who are you? What have you done? Why are you getting the crap beat out of you is what they're trying to get at here. Verse 34, some of the crowd was shouting. So he, Paul doesn't even get to answer. Some of the crowd are shouting and some another. One thing and some another. And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar and he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So one part of the people in the crowd thinks he's one guy. Another part of the people thinks he's another guy. 
And this leader here doesn't even know who this guy is. So he takes him into the barracks, which would have been separating him from the people so that he could actually get to the bottom of the situation. Once again, we see nothing but confusion here. This guy's taken Paul, arrested him. They don't even know who he is, but a group of Jews thinks he's one guy. Another group of Jews thinks he's another guy. And we're about to see in just a moment that the the leader here thinks he's another guy. They just don't know. They're confused. Verse 35, And when he came up to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. And there's some brave people. They're willing to beat him on his way, chained in between two soldiers. So the soldiers actually pick him up and carry him so that they're not beating him as they're walking. And then they say this phrase, away with him. Man, if that doesn't sound like just a, a picture looking backwards at the crucifixion of Jesus, I don't know what does. Instead of crucify him, crucify him, away with him, away with him. But in 37, as Paul was brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? So he's being respectful. He's not coming to his defense. He's just asking politely, can I say something to you? Now, as a father, this question bothers me sometimes because like, Dad, can I ask you something? I'm like, look, look, son, you already asked me something. But he's being respectful here, right? It's like, can, can I say something to you? Not presuming he has the right to do so, but asking permission. And the response is, do you know Greek? Which would mean you're not a dumb guy. You can actually speak Greek. You're educated. Then they ask him a follow-up question. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up the revolt and led 4,000 men of assassins out into the wilderness? They think he's this leader of an assassin group that is causing an uproar, a leader of 4,000 assassins. Why? Simply because he can speak Greek. So what happened here, though, just to make sense, is... uh, this group of assassins actually came to Jerusalem. It was causing wars and all of those things. And that's why this tribune now exists, right? And so what's so crazy about this is this one simple connection here is that this one guy caused an uproar. He spoke Greek. He was educated, causing problems in the city. Now you're causing an uproar. You speak Greek, so you must be him. Once again, more confusion. Verse 39, though, Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a city of no obscure city. He says, look, I'm a Jew. I I have connections to Jerusalem. I'm a Jew, but I'm from Tarsus. So a Roman city, essentially. He says, and a citizen of no obscure city. So I'm from a big place. I'm I'm not just some random guy causing problems. And then he says, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. Then when they were a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying. So he 
I don't know what the hand motion was, right? I don't know if he looked like a band director or something like that or a musician. I don't know what the motion was, but he makes this motion and everybody be quiet. It just starts being quiet. They, it gets quiet there. And he begins to speak in the Hebrew language. This is all before the speech. I'm talking about it all went down, right? Pain, sorrow, suffering. Paul could have easily went into these barracks and left the Jew without another opportunity to hear the gospel from him. This is actually the last time you're going to see Jerusalem mentioned in the book of Acts. As a, actually, as where they're at. And then also, this would be the last time you see Paul preach the gospel to specifically Jews. But what's amazing here is you're going to see that in verse 1 of chapter 22, when he begins his speech, brothers and fathers. Same way Stephen starts his speech. He's saying this with a love and affection for his people. In Scripture, Paul also says that if I could, I would give up my own salvation for my kinsmen. Paul would have been willing to give up his own salvation for other Jews to understand and know that Jesus was the true Messiah. He has an affection and a love for his people. He takes this one last opportunity after getting beaten down, beat up, being rushed off, all of this confusion, being claimed to be an assassin leader. I mean, look, they say he's roused our guru here, right? That he's about to lead this group of assassins in Jerusalem. He could have easily just stopped here and just went on with his business and pulled out the Roman card and said, look, I'm a Roman citizen and went on with his merry day. But this was not God's plan. God's plan was for Paul to be primarily a messenger to the Greek and the Gentile, but first to the Jew. So this last attempt, brothers and fathers, hear the defense now that, uh, that I now make before you. Just listen to me. This is what I'm about to say. Verse 2, though, it said, But when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet, and he said. Now, there's some question here if he's actually speaking Hebrew or if he's speaking Aramaic or a combination of the two. Hebrew language would have technically been died out at this point, so it might have been a combination of the two. Nonetheless, not important. He's not speaking Greek. Right? He's speaking the Hebrew language. So now the tribune sees him not only as this educated man speaking Greek, but they see him as this educated man that's bilingual. And not only that, but the people that just took and beat him are now recognizing, hey, this guy is a Jew. He has some kind of background here. They're amazed at this. You could have dropped a pin in this area and you could have heard that pin drop. It was quiet. But starting in verse 3, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Galilee, according to the, street, the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of uh, you are this day. I'm going to pause. Gamaliel is a 
very significant Jewish theologian of this day and time. He's the one that stood up when the, 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 the way began to happen, when Peter and John was preaching the gospel. He's the one that stood up in front of all of the Jewish leaders and said, if it's of God, then it will last. And if it's not of God, it will fail. And then everyone listened to him. This was the guy that was the... Um, if we're going to use terminology today, he was the conservative, solid leader of the Jewish sect at the time. So Paul drops his foundation here. I'm a Jew. Yes, I lived in Tarsus. So he probably looked a little different than the other Jews, but I'm from Tarsus. But I grew up here. I trained here. I sat under the feet of Galilee. Strict manner of the law. He's pointing back his first defense here is I am not breaking the law. I see the importance of the law essentially. Verse four. He's now about to throw a kind of leveraging with them that he did the same exact thing that they are doing to him. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priests and the whole council of elders can bear my, me witness. So now, not only is he saying, I am not this person, I'm not causing this problem, but he's bringing in the religious leaders of the Jewish people and says, look, they can even bear witness to this. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them into bounds to Jerusalem to be punished. He says, look, I was that guy. I was just as zealous for the faith that you are right now. He's making the gospel personal in this moment. He's connecting with them. Verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell on the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? Question mark. Lord, are you Lord? Question mark. You see that? He's asking a question. He didn't assume. And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Persecuting the church of Jesus is persecuting Jesus. Can't separate the church from Christ. Keep going. Verse 9. Now those who were with me saw a light but did not understand the voice open or speaking to me and said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, go to Damascus. And they will find, there will be told all that is appointed to you to do. And since I could not see you because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. What is so amazing about this story is that God specifically reached Paul. Not the other men. Paul. Because why? God was sovereignly using Paul to reach both Jew and Greek, but primarily the Greek. That Paul was God's chosen instrument. Why? To proclaim the gospel to all of those at the ends of the earth. That God was the God who was calling Paul in the moment of his conversion to be the Paul that would be standing and telling this story to a group of Jews that just beat him nearly to death. Not the men beside him, but Paul. Verse 12. And one, 
And Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, was spoken of all of the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And the very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. You hear that? The God of our fathers appointed you, specifically you here, to know his will, to see the righteous one and hear a voice from his mouth, that he appointed you to encounter Jesus. This was Jesus he saw on the road to Damascus. It wasn't just a voice from heaven. It wasn't just a lie. It was Jesus himself, and Jesus was calling his sheep to himself, and he responds here. Verse 15, For you will be a witness for him, everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you want? To wait, rise, be baptized, wash, uh, wash away your sins, calling on his name. He says, be saved here. Come to know this man, Jesus, that you encountered. He's calling him to salvation here. What's so amazing about that story, and I'm going to not say a bunch because we know this story well, is even when Jesus revealed himself directly to a man on the road to Damascus, he still used another human to bring him to salvation. Man, we hear so often of things today that is miraculous, especially in the Muslim culture, that they see dreams of Jesus and amazing things like that. But there's always someone else on the other end that is presenting the word to them and leading them to Jesus. Why? Because God has a means of salvation, and that means of salvation is you and I to proclaim the gospel and lead them to know Jesus. God is sovereign, and if God desired, he could save everyone by revealing them Jesus to them in random ways through dreams, visions, and all that. But that's not God's desire. That's not God's will. His will is to use you and us, you and I. So we have to be faithful to that, just like Ananias was. Keep going, verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The ultimate point Paul is making here is God sent me to the Gentiles. I'm being obedient to God. But in the heart of all of that, is that Jesus is God and that he was calling him to that. The Jews don't respond well here, but they hear the gospel again. Paul, once again, tries to connect with them and reason. He's reasoning with Jesus in this thought process, and his thought process was essentially this. Surely these people will know that I am the guy that was once doing this, so that'll mean something to them. And what does God say? It won't mean a thing. They're going to persecute you. They're going to kill you if you stay here. So you need to go. And he goes. Then many, 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 many years later, we see that he returns back to Jerusalem 
preaching the gospel and look at the response of the people whom he desired to save. Verse 22. Up to this word, they had listened to him. Then they raised their voice and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, they couldn't get rocks. So they were so mad that they were throwing dirt at Paul as if that was going to do anything. That even after all of these years have passed, they're not going to respond. Why, though? Well, high priestly prayer, Jesus would say that there are many in this sheepfold that are mine that you have given me. And there's some that are to come that you are giving me. And whoever you give me will be mine and be mine forever. God that is sovereign over this situation is sovereign over who comes to know Jesus. And what we see here is they don't. They hear. They're responsible. They're accountable. They know the holiness of God. And they reject Jesus. I'm going to pause and just say one quick thing. It's easy for us to look back on this disconnected and not saddened by it because we're separated by thousands of years. But Paul's affection for these people would have been that of distant family that you may have or friends that you may have that you share the gospel with and share the gospel with and share the gospel with and share the gospel with. Live godly lives around. When you act like a heathen that doesn't know Jesus, you say to them, man, I shouldn't act that way. And you, you, you show that you aren't a hypocrite, that it's not desiring to, to live one way and act another way, but rather that you're actually recognizing that you did something wrong in that moment and you share the gospel with them in that moment. And then they still don't come to know Jesus. That's this for Paul. This would have been a sad reality for him. But following that in 24, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Because they don't know. He doesn't know what Paul said in Hebrew. They have no idea what this long speech was just about, but all he knows is the response of the crowd was, you should die. So they flog him, is what they're wanting to do. When I said earlier, this would have been more torturous than punishment. They would have done this to make him confess to something, whatever that something was. So, verse 25 But when they had stretched him out for the whips. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by. So the guy that was about to beat Paul. He waits till he gets to that point where he's stretched out. He's tied to the post. Whichever it looked like, he's ready. He's about to take this beating. But right before he says to the guy that's about to beat him nearly to death. Is it lawful for you to flog a man 
who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned. By the uncondemned, he means not judged by the Roman government. That he hasn't went through his trial yet to see if he was condemned or not. It wasn't wrong for them to flog a man as punishment in the Roman government, but it was wrong for them to flog a man as a torture to make him commit to something so then he could be punished. Verse 26, And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. This centurion stopped at his tracks, goes to the tribune immediately. Why? Because if he was the guy that beat Paul, knowing Paul was a Roman citizen, man, he would have died. And he would have died quickly. Or he would have died very slowly and very painfully. One of the two. But he would have died for that. Like that was punishment by death. So he's smart. He goes back to him. So the tribune in verse 27 came and said to him, Tell me, are you the Roman are you a Roman citizen? And he said to them, Yes. Look at twenty eight. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship. For a large sum. So there's one particular guy here. And we see his name in 23. Um, i trying to remember his name. I'm, I apologize. Let's see if I can find it real quick. Anyway, can't find it. Uh, Felix. No, not Felix. I'm sorry. But anyway, so this one guy is the main guy talking for the tribune. He asked Paul, are you a Roman citizen? Paul says, yes. And then this one guy responds and says, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. So he wasn't born a citizen. Like, I know that seems like not a big deal because we live in America and somebody can come in, in, in a peaceful way, cross the border, seek asylum, or they could go through the, the, the right systems to become a citizen here. And they're just as equal as a citizen as anyone else after they become a citizen. Rome was not that way. You had this hierarchy. You had citizen by birth, which was about 2% of Roman citizenship. And then you had everybody else. And then you had non-Roman citizens. Okay, uh, well, then you had people that lived in Roman colonies that were not Roman citizens. And then you would have had like uh, other like, you know, slaves and things of the such. Okay, so there's this hierarchy here. And Paul's response is, but I am a citizen by birth. That is so big. Like, it's hard for me to express how big that really is. But that is so big. Paul's not one that bought his citizenship but got it from birth. Verse 28. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Because it would also have been punishment for them to arrest a Roman citizen for nothing. So they would have been lawful knowing that Paul was a Roman citizen when he was getting beat to death to come in with their groups of men and destroyed all of the Jews around them. Because why? They were beating a Roman citizen, specifically one that was a Roman citizen by birth. 
yes, God was using them to protect. Really thought about Romans chapter 13, verse 1. So let every person be subject to the governing authority, for there is one authority except for God, and those who exist have been uh, instituted by God. That this Roman government existed for God's provisions for those around, to take care of those around. Certainly they overstepped in many ways, but they were still functioning in that way in this moment for Paul. But the thing that I can't miss here is who is Paul? Who is Paul? Why is Paul significant? And as you look at this story, my big point was you see nothing but confusion, but God is ultimately sovereignly in control of the circumstances at hand. But I want you to see the depth of how in control God is of the circumstances. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Looking at verse 10. So there was a disciple at Damascus whose name was Ananias. We just talked about him a little bit, right? But this is the moment where Ananias actually got to talk to Luke and kind of write his part of the story. In this story that Paul is giving, he's giving his perspective. Now Luke is bringing out Ananias' perspective here. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus whose name is Saul. This is before his name changes to Paul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man of Nan- named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered. Listen what Ananias' response is because this is our response. Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he is as authority from the chief priests to bind up all who call on your name. And Ananias says, look, are you sure? Because this guy not only can kill me, but man, he came here to kill people like me and to arrest people like me. He's ultimately obedient, but he's, he's questioning it here, right? But look at 15. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul's mission and calling in life was to proclaim the gospel to both Jew and Gentile. That's why when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20 through 22, it says to The Jews I have become a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I have become as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I may win those that are under the law. To those outside of the law I have become as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but tender the law of Christ, that I might win those who are outside of the law. To the weak I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I may Save some. Why is all of this significant when looking at this story of Paul in Acts 21 and 22? 
And I don't think this is a leap, but I need you to follow me here, okay? That God sovereignly placed Paul to be a man of both Judaism and Roman life. To be his instrument of the gospel to both Jew and Greek. This wasn't an accident. Jesus just didn't wake up one day in heaven and be like, you know that guy Paul? And he's a Jew, he's a Greek. And you know what? He'd be really good to go and proclaim the gospel to the Gentile and the Jew. From the foundation of the world, Paul was selected for the mission that he is now unfolding. And God sovereignly is in control, not only of this situation here, But what gets Paul out of this situation is that he is a Roman citizen by birth. We only see one other place thus far in the book of Acts where Paul pulls a Roman citizen card, and that was in Philippi. He didn't do this often, but he did it when it was necessary. And he did it when God was sovereignly calling him to. And this is what we see in this story here. Is why did Paul's story end different than Stephen's? It's because Paul was a Roman citizen placed by God to be a witness to both Jew and Gentile. And Paul understood that. And God placed him there. Which then leads me to my final question. This is rhetorical. Don't answer out loud. Because you're going to think there's an answer here and I don't want there to be. What makes us different than Paul? What makes you different than Paul? Certainly you're not an apostle. You didn't see Jesus risen Savior. You didn't write 13 books of the New Testament and it's canonized now. So it's not like you can magically write books that would go in there. But practically, what makes us different than Paul? And my argument is nothing but time and space. God has a very similar calling on all of our lives. And that similar calling is that we're called to proclaim the gospel to those whom he has placed in our life until no longer in our life. And then we're called to proclaim the gospel to those that are then in our life. We're called to disciple those who are in our life until they're no longer in our life. And we're called to disciple those who are in our lives. Cycle after cycle cycle. If God sovereignly placed Paul in this moment and in this time for his sovereign plan to save some, then my argument is valid to say that he has sovereignly placed Nick and Micah and Reese and Tania and David and Lydia and Elijah and other Elijah and Tyson and Melody and Thea and Myself in the place in which he has placed us to save some. But what I do think often separates us from Paul is more about the mindset and recognizing that. 
we oftentimes don't become weak for those who are weak. We don't oftentimes become all things to all people that might some be saved. We tend to focus on our own ambitions, own desires, own possessions, thoughts, all of those things to where we're unwilling to abandon all for the name of Christ. So when I look at this story, I think the primary theme here is when no one is in control, seemingly, there's always one that is in control, and that is the Lord. And that goes to everything that we're about to see now. But the other thing, and this is a specific charge to people that are leaving here and they're going to go do some mission work right now, is that God is also calling us sovereignly to proclaim His gospel where He sends us. And so the way I'm going to end today is I'm going to ask David to come out of the sound booth first um, because we're not going to sing a song and none of that. I'm just going to pray that, one, we would trust that God would sovereignly use us to save those around us. Uh, And that would be something you would recognize in your own life. If it be your children or your friend group or your co-workers or whatever it may be. Uh, It could be the person that you see at the restaurant. Or it could be uh, wherever Elijah, Nick, and David's about to go and do what they're about to do. So we're going to pray that God would not only go before them and work in the hearts of men and women, but he would go with them and empower them to proclaim the gospel there. And I'm going to pray for the same for all of us. But before I do that, I'm going to end like we always do. But we're going to stand together and we're going to read it together. It's not on the screen. That's okay, though. If you don't know it by now, let's learn it. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Father, you sovereignly sent a Paul into Jerusalem to be beaten, arrested, rescued slash arrested, almost flogged one so that they could preach he could preach the gospel to the Jew again, but as we will see in weeks to come, so that he God, you're amazing, that he could preach the gospel to all of the Roman leadership all the way up to the big man in the chair. And Father, we thank you for that. And God, we know that though we may not be preaching to the big people in chairs in our life, God, you have called us to preach to those whom you have placed around us. So we pray for a leadership and a trust to do that. And God, I pray specifically that as crews from Bridgeway are going out in various locations and our people are about to go with them, God, that you would provide opportunities uh, to not only love on individuals, but present the gospel to them. If it be people that are just working alongside them or if it be people who are in deep despair. 
or it could be the cop that is blocking the roads or the emergency workers that are providing or someone giving out waters. Whatever it may be, God, that you would use this to proclaim your gospel to those around. God, we pray all of these things in faith that you will save. Not because we're good people that do good things, but Father, because as we are faithful to the one who has called us into the mission field, you will faithfully save those whom you are calling to yourself. And we pray for that for us now. In your son's holy name, amen.